0: Okay, everybody, good morning. I'm going to get started. My name is Rich Prattley. I'm the medical director at Advent Health Diabetes Institute in Orlando, Florida. And our topic today is cardiovascular health in patients with diabetes. But before I get started, I'd like to take a quick poll uh, of the audience. How many of you are uh, physicians? That's a lot. How about APP, advanced practice people? A few? Nurses? A lot of nurses? Uh, administrators? Not administrators. I guess you could have two hands up uh, during this. Okay, so that gives me a little bit of an idea uh, of uh, the, the background of people so that we can tailor things. I'm going to run through a lot of data uh, about trials in diabetes because uh, this is a hot, evolving area. And the reason this is important is that we are changing our treatment guidelines to improve outcomes in patients with diabetes. And so uh, the rationale for these changes is really based upon the uh, results of these large trials that I'll be showing to you. Here are my uh, disclosures, uh, and uh, of note, everything that I earn from working with pharma companies goes directly to my institution. I don't see a dime. We want to integrate the latest cardiovascular data into uh, our practice uh, and understand how these data impact how we should select patients for different treatments. Uh, In the context of doing this, I'm going to talk about the recent changes in guidelines from the American Diabetes Association, and uh, we also want to talk about how to do this in the context of uh, individual patients and in the context of a practice. So, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. I'm sure you're all aware of much of the data. Uh, I'm going to do a brief overview of the drugs that we have to treat diabetes, and then I'm going to go into a series of trials with diabetes drugs to set the stage for why the guidelines uh, are changing, and then we'll talk about individualizing therapy. Thirty million people with diabetes in this country, projected increase over the next uh, 20 years or so to 35. Most cases are type 2 diabetes. There are 84 million people at risk for prediabetes. And we worry about it not so much because of blood sugars, but because of the long-term complications. Uh, It's the third leading cause of death when you consider uh, contributing causes to things like cardiovascular disease. And it ain't cheap, $327 billion per year. It's a progressive disease. uh, It starts with a prodrome with prediabetes and then type 2 diabetes, and then complications, and disability and death. So we have opportunity for both primary prevention, preventing diabetes, as well as secondary prevention among people who have diabetes or complications, such as cardiovascular disease. How are we doing? Turns out, not so great in this country. We have about half the population, about 14 million people, who have an A1C above the nominal target of 7% or so. Now, arguably, some of these people are fine with an A1C above 7% or so, but there's still lots of people in there who are inadequately controlled. The other problem with type 2 diabetes is, of course, the epidemic of obesity. 16 million people with diabetes uh, have obesity and over four million have severe obesity. So this is a really important issue to consider along with glycemic control. We talk about the microvascular complications, retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, but the thing that really is uh, impactful are the macrovascular complications, cardiovascular disease, stroke, peripheral vascular disease leading to amputations. These cost hundreds of millions of dollars uh, per year. So anything that we can do to prevent these conditions is uh, is very important. Diabetes is associated with an increased risk of all cardiovascular complications. This is the data from the Framingham Heart Study for Heart Failure. You see patients without diabetes in the light blue uh, line, patients with diabetes in the dark blue line. So regardless of what age, people with diabetes are at two to five-fold higher risk of having heart failure. And that's an important complication of diabetes. When you consider the complications such as MI and heart failure, they're directly related to the level of glycemic control, uh, so that more events happen in people with higher A1C levels. This is data from the UK Prospective Diabetes Study. Now, over the last 20, 25 years, we've made progress in cardiovascular disease across the country and with people with diabetes. So this data indicates the rates uh, of events per uh, 10,000 patients with diabetes. And you can see that acute MI on top, stroke, uh, amputations, uh, have all come down uh, over the last 20 to 30 years or so. Good news, right? Problem is that this trend has been leveling off over the last three to five years or so. And this is data from a Swedish registry, but this indicates that despite the improvements in cardiovascular disease in Sweden, which mirror those in the US, there's still an excess risk of cardiovascular death in patients with diabetes compared to match controls on the lower line. So we're making progress, but we haven't solved the problem in diabetes. In fact, the problem's getting worse. It's getting worse because we have so many more people with diabetes. Over the last 20 years or so, the number of patients with diabetes has more than doubled. So therefore, the complications that we're dealing with uh, are increasing. So although the prevalence rate is going down per patient, the actual number, the burden of diabetes, is going up for all of these problems. So, we're faced with a huge problem. Now, we have 12 classes of drugs to treat diabetes. Uh, So, it presents a dilemma. It's kind of like the Charles Dickens opening line. It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. It's the best of times because all these options. It's the worst of times because how do you choose? How do you go between 12 different drugs and which drugs do we use for which patients? And that's the purpose of guidelines from the ADA and other organizations, Try to put some sense around the many choices that we have. We all start with metformin as the primary therapy for type 2 diabetes, and all of the guidelines agree on that because uh, of its side effect profile, its efficacy, its cost, uh, and because it seems to prevent uh, cardiovascular events. But after that, we have a large number of choices. Some of the older drugs, like sulfonylureas and TZDs, and then newer classes of drugs, the DPP-4 inhibitors, SGLT-2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and even potentially basal insulin. They all have risks, they all have uh, benefits. The good news is that we can use these drugs in combination because they all kind of work in different ways. Some. Uh, work on the beta cells to enhance insulin secretion, Uh, some work on the kidney to decrease uh, glucose reabsorption. Uh, So these drugs oftentimes work well in combination with one another if we choose those combinations appropriately. Now I'm not going to go into great detail with these next series of slides because you have these on your uh, app, but all of the drugs work in sort of different ways uh, and they all have some benefits All lower A1C, of course, because they're diabetes drugs, some to a greater extent than others, uh, but uh, all are associated with uh, some side effects as well. With insulin and sulfonylureas, the principal thing we're worried about is hypoglycemia. Yes, there's a little bit of weight gain with these drugs, but that's not a reason to not use them. Metformin, uh, excellent drug, but GI tolerability. Uh, the potential for lactic acidosis in people who have uh, impaired kidney function, and then a fraction of people, on the order of 10 to 15%, who have used metformin for more than 10 years or so, will develop a B12 deficiency that could be clinically relevant. Thiazolidinediones are associated with weight gain. That can be prodigious. and increased risk for heart failure, uh, bone fractures uh, in uh, older individuals. So these are drugs that are great, but also have a side effect profile we need to be Uh, aware of. The DPP4 inhibitors, generally very well tolerated, they're very rare side effects, principally hypersensitivity side effects, and there's a label indication for an increased risk for pancreatitis with these drugs. GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, GI side effects are the principal side effect of these uh, drugs. There is also an association with uh, gallbladder disease, And in rodents, but not in humans, and in uh, an association with medullary uh, thyroid carcinoma. Finally, the SGLT2 inhibitors, our newest class of drugs. They're associated with some polyuria, but most importantly, it's a common side effect, genitourinary mycotic infections. They're troublesome, but they're not in and of themselves serious. Costs. We have older drugs that are cheap. Metformin is cheaper than dirt. Uh, This is true. In Publix, where I buy my groceries in Florida, Metformin is free, and I know that because there was a sign on the cookie aisle that says, free Metformin, right below the Chips Ahoy. Talk about marketing, right? On the very same trip, my wife and I went to Home Depot to get some potting soil. The potting soil is $498, a bag about this big. So this proves, in fact, that Metformin is cheaper than dirt. Cell final ureas are also cheap. They can be available free. Uh, Insulin, highly variable. Some of the newer insulins, and particularly in patients with type 2 diabetes, on high doses, uh, can be thousands of dollars a month if they're paying out of pocket. Most people don't realize that. Now, most people don't pay out of pocket, but when you have Medicare patients that hit a donut hole, their cost of insulin can easily go above $1,000 a month. TZDs are relatively... uh, It's inexpensive now, and you can uh, look on GoodRx to find the lowest price. DPP-4 inhibitors are more expensive, as are the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT-2 inhibitors. So this is an, uh, uh, an important issue for many of our patients. Now, we've had a number of trials over the last few decades that have looked at intensive glycemic control. All of these have indicated that there is a benefit on microvascular complications, things like neuropathy, nephropathy. Uh, and retinopathy. Mostly they've been neutral for cardiovascular disease. There have been some studies over the long-term follow-up that have suggested a benefit. But there's also some suggestion in the Accord study that intensive glycemic control aiming for normal glucose levels was associated with an increased risk of mortality. So the data are very mixed in terms of glycemic control per se. It certainly seems to help microvascular complications and it lowers the risk depending upon the lowering of glucose levels, anywhere from 25 to 60%. But for macrovascular disease, the data are really thin. Now, we've come into a whole new era, and this started out uh, kind of by happenstance. There was a publication back, way back in 2007 uh, by Steve Nissen, a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, where he looked at the phase 3 data from rosiglitazone, TZD. And he seemed to find an increased risk of myocardial infarction in those studies in people exposed to rosiglitazone. And this got picked up, and rosiglitazone wasn't entirely taken off the market, but uh, for all intents and purposes, it uh, it was stopped marketing. And this led to new guidance from the FDA. Uh, They recognized the problem of cardiovascular disease in patients with diabetes, and they said, if you're going to develop a new drug, you should at least show that this drug is safe in patients with diabetes. You don't have to show benefit, but you should show that it doesn't increase risk for cardiovascular disease. And there were some criteria in this guidance. Now, the outcome of that, the, uh, the, in, the, um, what happened in, as a result, is that we have a large number of very large cardiovascular outcome studies using the DPP-4 inhibitors, all of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, and all of the SGLT2 inhibitors, because those were all in development uh, during this period. And what we've seen is just this explosion of patients in diabetes trials, long-term trials where we're looking at meaningful outcomes like death, MI, heart failure, and so on. When the FDA guidance was released, there were probably about 10,000 or so patients in these trials, and now we have close to 200,000 patients in these trials. Well, think about it we have more patients for a longer exposure we know much more about these newer drugs in terms of their benefits but also their safety issues and we're uncovering some things that weren't anticipated as a result of these trials so overall this has been a good thing for patients with diabetes so it started with the TZDs and I'll walk you through some data there was a cardiovascular outcome study many years ago with uh, pioglitazone the primary endpoint which was non-fatal MI stroke acute coronary syndrome, revascularization, or leg amputation was lower in patients treated with pioglitazone, but not statistically so. It's about 10% reduction. A secondary endpoint, though, which was what we now usually use as, uh, in endpoint trials, which was all-cause mortality, non-fatal MI or stroke, was significantly lower, suggesting that there might be a benefit with pioglitazone. However, this came at a risk of increased heart failure hospitalizations. Uh, the risk was about 50% higher with pioglitazone, uh, but none of these events. Uh, there was not a significant increase in fatal heart failure. How about rosiglitazone? This is a drug that started it all. They did a large trial, 4,000 patients, called the RECORD study. And in the RECORD study, there was absolutely no indication that there was an increased risk of MI, stroke, or heart or, or cardiovascular death. Uh, the hazard ratio was 0.99 for rosiglitazone. So we were able to essentially refute those early findings with the phase three studies, which were not designed to show cardiovascular safety. There's a one further study with the TZD called the IRIS study. This is a study in patients with stroke who did not have diabetes. There was some indication that stroke events were less. So the NIH funded this study. This is published in the New England Journal. To get in 4, 000, almost 4,000 patients with a stroke or TIA, uh, we randomized a placebo or pioglitazone, followed for five years. And pioglitazone decreased events by about 24%. This is MI, stroke, and cardiovascular death. So very significant effect in these patients at high risk for cardiovascular events. So with TZDs, there's no apparent increased risk of MI or MACE with our robust trials, and some apparent benefit with pioglitazone but I don't think we can assume this is a class effect. Both pioglitazone and rosiglitazone are associated with increased risk for heart failure, although this wasn't associated with increased risk of heart failure deaths. And the other side effects, such as weight gain uh, fractures, were also seen in these trials. Now, DPP-4 inhibitors. Uh, These drugs are widely used. Uh, They're very well tolerated. They lower A1C about 0.6 to 0.8% or so. Low risk of hypoglycemia. So there are a lot of reasons to like these drugs, and the side effects, very rare. So these drugs have been very popular. There have been three trials with DPP-4 inhibitors, with saxagliptin, sitagliptin, and uh, allagliptin that were published a few years ago in the New England Journal, and now there are two more trials with linagliptin. These trials all had a similar design. Uh, these drugs were compared to usual care. Uh, in different patient populations. with uh, saxagliptin. It was a mixed patient population at risk or with preexisting disease. With allagliptin, it was all patients who had acute coronary syndrome. And in the sitagliptin trial with uh, almost 14,000 patients, they had all had prior cardiovascular events. All of these drugs had essentially the same group, uh, outcome. They didn't increase risk for cardiovascular events, but they didn't have a benefit either. You can see that each of these cases... The uh, Kaplan-Meier curves completely overlie those of usual care. So in a sense, this is good news. These drugs showed what they were intended to show, which is the cardiovascular safety of the the drugs. However, they didn't show any benefit, which we were kind of expecting and hoping for. Now, I talked about unanticipated uh, side effects. And in the saxagliptin study, with the Saber-Timmy study, there was an excess risk of heart failure seen with saxagliptin. This has not been seen with the other DPP4 inhibitors, so it seems to be peculiar to this particular DPP4 inhibitor, but it resulted in a label change. So be aware of that if you have patients with heart failure. I told you that there were two more trials with linagliptin. Here is the Carmelina trial. This is very similar to these other trials, uh, and they showed an identical finding. There was no increased risk uh, for cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke, and also no benefit. Uh, there was also no increased risk for heart failure. That's uh, on the far right-hand side in patients treated with linagliptin in blue there. And then finally, Carolina. Carolina was an interesting study that compared linagliptin versus a sulfonylurea. And the idea was that, well, maybe the sulfonylureas increase risk for patients. And so this was a really important study to understand how the new drugs compare to older drugs in the presence of and similar glycemic control. Turns out, no difference in risk between uh, the DPP4 inhibitor and the sulfonylurea. This is also good news because it means that we can still use the sulfonylureas that are important in our practice, they're cost-effective, without uh, the uh, burden of thinking that we're increasing their cardiovascular risk. There was more hypoglycemia with the sulfonylureas, however. So these trials all met the primary goal of demonstrating no increased risk of CVD. No benefit was seen. There's some heterogeneity with respect to heart failure. And we've seen other uh, potentially uh, beneficial effects of the drugs, such as decreased rates of albuminuria and side effects, things like pancreatitis. Numerically higher uh, in many of these trials. SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, You'll remember that these drugs work specifically on the kidney, uh, the glucose that is filtered by the glomerulus, is normally reabsorbed almost 100% in the kidney. When you block this with an SGLT2 inhibitor, there's increased glucose excretion. This has a number of good effects. It decreases the plasma glucose, of course. It also decreases body weight, uh, in part, because you're having an obligate caloric loss. They're associated with a decrease in blood pressure, uric acid, and they seem to have beneficial effects on the kidneys. So, lots of benefits, uh, and there's some risks. I talked about genital mycotic infections, UTIs, uh, and uh, some very rare risks, such as diabetic uh, ketoacidosis as well. There have been three uh, cardiovascular outcome studies with SGLT2 inhibitors that have been completed. All have a similar design, they're all compared to usual care. Uh, and these were with uh, empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and with dapagliflozin. With epigaflosin, we've had an unexpected result. And that was that emp- decreased the risk of cardiovascular outcomes by 14%. And that was significant. So that was really good news. We weren't exactly expecting that because this is a, a very specific, specific effect on the kidney. So it wasn't clear how this worked. But empagliflozin also decreased cardiovascular death uh, by 38 percent, and it seemed to decrease uh, serious kidney damage by 39 percent. So unanticipated benefits of these drugs were uncovered in the course of doing these cardiovascular outcome studies. So was this just empagliflozin? Turns out, no. This is a class effect. With canagliflozin, a 14 percent reduction in mace as well, so identical to empagliflozin. There's also a decrease in heart failure seen uh, with these drugs. It was 35% with empigaflosin, 33% with canigaflosin. And then for this composite endpoint in dapigaflosin of cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure, it was a 17% reduction that was uh, highly significant. Uh, There was also a reduction in mace, although not quite significant with dapigaflosin. So realizing that these drugs might have a kidney benefit Specific kidney studies were designed. The first of these to report is called Credence. It was just reported uh, at uh, the ADA uh, last year. Uh, and in this study, patients with chronic kidney disease and diabetes were randomized to either canagliflozin or to uh, usual care. And on the background of ACEs and ARBs, these are the only drugs that we've had in the past to decrease risk for uh, progression of car- uh, chronic kidney disease. The SGLT2 inhibitor reduced the uh, endpoint of end-stage kidney disease, a doubling of serum creatinine, or renal cardiovascular death by 30%. So, a huge effect uh, and highly significant. So that mirrors the effect that was seen in the earlier studies. So we've seen a decrease in MACE across all of the SGLT2 inhibitors. There's one SGLT2 inhibitor, ertigaflosin, that is still in... Uh, it's trial, it should release data later this year. We've seen reductions in cardiovascular death with these drugs and big reductions in hospitalization for heart failure. Epigaflosin and canagliflozin now have labels for, increase, for decreasing the risk for cardiovascular death and MACE in patients with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. And the FDA is looking at the kidney data uh, as well. These drugs uh, work on the kidneys. They have to be adjusted in patients with chronic kidney disease. And by and large, we don't use them if the EGFR is less than 45. It has nothing to do with the safety of these drugs. It has everything to do with the fact that these drugs don't work well in lowering glucose levels uh, when the kidney isn't filtering as much glucose. So for that reason, there's uh, labeling about the use of these drugs in patients with chronic kidney disease. However, in all of these CVOTs, they enrolled patients with EGFR down to 30. And even those patients with poor kidney function benefited in terms of uh, the progression of chronic kidney disease as well as the cardiovascular progression. So we probably will see some realignment of those uh, uh, warnings as well. Uh, we talked about general mycotic infections. Diabetic ketoacidosis happens with these drugs rarely, mainly in the setting of acute injury, uh, illness. Uh, people are on these drugs uh, and they're hospitalized, uh, but it is something to be aware of because oftentimes DKA does not present with high blood, blood sugar levels in these uh, patients. There was a warning, there is a warning in the Canagliflozin label for an increased risk of lower limb amputations. Uh, these were few events, uh, but it happened primarily in patients who had prior amputations or active foot ulcers. This is not seen in any other uh, SGLT2 inhibitor, and it was not seen with their CKD study that they just completed in another 4,000 patients. So we're not sure what to make of this, but be aware that uh, if you have patients with uh, diabetes and limb amputations and uh, ulcers, uh, be careful of these drugs. And of course, they all should uh, examine their feet every day anyway. GLP-1 receptor agonists, last class of drugs to cover. Uh, We know that unlike the SGLT2 inhibitors, there are GLP-1 receptors all over the body, and so they have diverse effects. The principal effects to lower glucose are related to the pancreas, they enhance insulin secretion, and they suppress glucagon, but they also have effects in the brain to suppress uh, appetite in the stomach to slow gastric emptying, and possibly in the vasculature as well. There are um, six or so different drugs uh, that are now available uh, for the treatment of diabetes. and what's interesting about the GLP-1 receptor agonists? these are all peptide hormones, and they all are a little bit different in their structure. Some are based upon exenatide, so uh, exenatide uh, with um, uh, bieta and bydureon, or elixa with elixacenatide. Uh, and some are based upon human GLP-1, loraglutide, semaglutide, dulaglutide, and albiglutide, which is a drug we don't have in the country anymore. So they have pretty substantial benefits. These are some of the most effective drugs for lowering glucose in patients with diabetes, even in head-to-head studies against insulin. They have a low risk of hypoglycemia. They result in significant weight loss, and the weight loss can be on the order of six uh, to eight kilograms or so. There's a small decrease in blood pressure. There seems to be some effects on albuminuria and cholesterol and inflammation, but they have some downsides as well. They're injectable drugs. Uh, about 20% or so people will experience nausea or vomiting with these drugs. There's been some concern about a risk for pancreatitis, and I told you about this uh, risk in patients uh, with uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia or who have medullary thyroid carcinoma. Um, this finding, again, is mainly is all in mice. So there have been several studies with the GLP-1 receptor agonist. The first was a study that I worked on called uh, the LEADER study with liraglutide, And uh, liraglutide showed a 13% risk reduction in MACE uh, against usual care over about uh, five years or so. Now, one of the interesting uh, findings in this study is that liraglutide was not associated with an increased risk of pancreatitis. So having 9,000 patients exposed over a long period of time helped us to understand the risk-benefit profile of this drug. So not only did it improve cardiovascular outcomes, but it seemed to be reasonably safe and well-tolerated. Exenatide once weekly also showed a reduction in MACE, although it was not statistically significant. It was only uh, 9%. Part of the reason for this may be that they enrolled a lower-risk population. Uh, one of the most recent results presented uh, at uh, the ADA was with dulaglutide or Trulicity, the Rewind study. Rewind showed a 12% reduction in cardiovascular outcomes that was significant. Uh, the uh, risk for death tended to be to go in the right direction, but was not significant. But um, there was a significant reduction in non-fatal stroke uh, compared to usual care. And then finally, uh, Sustained Six with uh, once-weekly injectable semaglutide. Smaller study, a pre-approval study, showed a 24, 26% reduction in MACE. Uh, it was associated with a reduction in non-fatal MI, uh, non-fatal stroke, and because it was a short-term study, no effect on cardiovascular death. Now, the last study I'm going to show, again, was presented at the ADA this last year, it was with oral semaglutide. This is a drug that we don't have on the market yet, but it will probably be available soon same molecule as the injectable once weekly semaglutide given daily as a pill form. So this is pretty innovative. You can take a peptide hormone and give it orally and get enough into the circulation to have a benefit. It works well in terms of lowering A1C. It's very competitive with other oral agents, a little bit better with weight loss. But the question in this study was does it affect cardiovascular outcomes? And there in this study there was a 21% reduction in uh, MACE events with oral semaglutide. Now, because this was a small study, this was not statistically significant, but you can see the trend matches those of the other GLP-1 receptor agonists. So far, only liraglutide has the indication for cardiovascular risk reduction, but it's likely that the other GLP-1 receptor agonists, particularly dulaglutide, will uh, join that soon. So we've seen uh, a lot of evidence over uh, the last few years. The DPP-4 inhibitors on top, all neutral in terms of their cardiovascular risk, uh, but not showing a cardiovascular benefit. With the GLP-1 receptor agonist in the middle, uh, several of the members of the class showing a benefit, uh, some of them having kind of a neutral effect, but no increased risk with this class. And then with the SGLT-2 inhibitors across the bottom, a consistent reduction in Uh, cardiovascular events, heart failure, uh, and a a renal benefit as well. So what does this all mean for the treatment of patients with diabetes? A whole lot of data, I don't expect you to remember all of that data, but it's been distilled down into new guidelines. For many years, uh, the ADA has an A1C target of less than 7% for most uh, adults. Uh, Individualization of is important, so people who are young, with a long life expectancy, with nuance onset diabetes, you can achieve a more stringent goal in these folks. And for people who are older, perhaps with a uh, less of a life expectancy or multiple comorbidities, less stringent goals, say un- less than 8% might be appropriate. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists on the bottom has uh, similar goals. They're a little bit more uh, stringent than the ADA. Uh, but the idea that you can uh, uh, adjust them for the patient profile uh, is retained there as well. When we set glycemic goals, we have to consider a large number of factors, uh, the risks associated with uh, goal achievement, including things like hypoglycemia and other adverse events, disease duration. For most of the studies, it seems like people who've had shorter disease duration benefit more from intensive glycemic control. Life expectancy: if people aren't going to live long enough to achieve the long-term benefits of glycemic control, then we should definitely uh, have less stringent goals. Comorbidities, uh, things like vascular complications, cancer all work into the, um, the quantum about whether or not we should have more stringent or less stringent goals. This is very individualized. And then things like patient preference and resources are important as well. These are things that we can. Influence. So, American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. If your entry A1C is less than 7.5% or so, then uh, monotherapy is fine, generally metformin, but you could consider other therapies. But if your entry A1C is above 7.5%, consider dual therapy. The reason for that is that most people won't achieve their target of 6.5% just on one drug. For people, who are not at goal, then triple oral therapy or addition of an injectable such as a GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, is called for. And the idea is to ramp up therapy when people don't achieve goal. When the A1C target uh, is higher, uh, when the A1C levels are higher, I should say, and particularly if people have symptoms, then uh, these are usually candidates for insulin therapy uh, or at least uh, triple therapy to get people to goal. Now, this is part of the new guidance for the uh, American Diabetes Association. And the whole concept is uh, almost a continuous quality cycle rather than a linear progression of therapy. So we start by assessing the key patient characteristics. What is their lifestyle? What are their comorbidities? Uh, What is their their clinical characteristics, their A1C, and so on and so forth, and and factors like their uh, cultural uh, background. Consider specific factors that have impact the choice of therapies, their kidney function, the A1C target, for example. Uh, and then have a shared decision-making with the patient to create a, a management plan. Uh, it doesn't matter what you think might be the best treatment. If the patient is on board with that, you know they're not going to take that medicine. And the reasons for non-adherence include things like cost, not understanding what the drug is for, and not understanding what the potential risks are of the drug. And then there are other factors, you know, like the the cultural aspect of things. You know, when they come back with a prescription for uh, insulin and somebody tells them, you know, Aunt Maisie had insulin and she lost her legs six months ago, people don't take their insulin. So you have to agree on a a management plan and then uh, implement that management plan, assess how the management plan is going on a regular basis, and then adjust that management plan. So I had a patient who uh, was not doing great. She was on uh, metformin and sulfonylurea, and her A1C had crept up to the high 8s. Young woman, she should have had a lower target. Uh, so I asked her what was going on. Uh, her cholesterol was higher, too. And she said, well, I got some hypoglycemia. You know, and she knew what hypoglycemia was. And I said, okay, what would you do? And she said, well, I've been taking my medicine less. Okay, yeah, that's not irrational, right? And I said, so how often are you taking the self-filing She said, well, I'm not taking that. And I said, uh, how about the metformin? She said, well, I take that about once a week now. And then I said, hmm, how often are you taking your statin? She says, I only take that about once a week, too. So although she knew that the drugs were causing hypoglycemia, she wasn't sure which one it was and had backed off on everything. So adherence and side effects can impact... Uh, Side effects can impact on adherence, and it may go farther than you think. So I was able to get her back on the metformin, back on the statin, and a medication that didn't cause hypoglycemia, and she came in to go for all of her uh, factors. So this is important to have this conversation uh, with patients. Ask them about side effects. Ask them about things like hypoglycemia. Now, this is the overall ADA uh, algorithm, Uh, and the concept here is that we're now targeting Uh, patients for different medications based upon their background. So if you have patients who have established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease, then we should target uh, them with specific drugs, either GLP-1 receptor agonists or SGLT-2 inhibitors because these drugs have been shown in the cardiovascular outcome studies to result in a meaningful benefit. Fewer deaths, fewer MIs, fewer strokes, and fewer hospitalizations for heart failure. So if you have a person who has heart failure or chronic kidney disease, the first choice is probably an SGLT2 inhibitor. If on on those drugs the patient is still above the A1C target, then it's quite reasonable to add on the other medications. So they start off on a GLP-1 receptor agonist. You can add an SGLT2 inhibitor if they're not at their glycemic target, or conversely, if they're on an SGLT2 inhibitor, not at goal, you can add on a GLP-1 receptor agonist. These two classes of drugs work in totally different ways, and, there's, um, and so your A1C lowering will be uh, uh, more, uh, and we don't think that there's any interaction that would interfere with their cardiovascular benefits. Now, if on the other hand, people don't have cardiovascular disease, Uh, but there is a compelling need to manage hypoglycemia or minimize hypoglycemia. So, for example, an older individual who maybe lives alone, then we have a number of choices. DPP-4 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, the SGLT-2 inhibitors, or even the TZDs. TZD may not be a good choice for an older individual, but they may be a better choice for uh, a younger individual. If there's a compelling need to minimize weight gain or promote weight loss, which means fortunately all of my patients with type 2 diabetes, I don't know what about your patients, then the drugs that cause the most meaningful weight loss are the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT-2 inhibitors. And again, those can be used in combination. There are now several trials that indicate that the weight loss uh, is greater with the, that combination than it is with either drug alone. Finally, if cost is a major issue, uh, then in addition to metformin, we can use sulfonylureas and we can use those with a pretty good um, sense that they don't increase risk for cardiovascular disease, at least for glimepiride, which is usually the drug that I use uh, as a sulfonylurea anyway. You could also use TZDs. We've seen evidence that pioglitazone is associated with a decrease in cardiovascular events. So for patients with diabetes, cardiovascular disease who can't afford or insurance doesn't cover the more expensive GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor, I think you can in good conscience, prescribe a uh, TZD to those individuals. And if their A1C uh, levels are still above target after three months or so, you can add on the S-cell to them. So we talked about the guidelines. We talked about the data that backs up those guidelines. How do we do this on a practical uh, level for individual patients? Well, first, we have to look at the patient. Do they have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease? Do they have heart failure? Do they have chronic kidney disease? These all impact on which drugs we might choose. Do they need weight loss? Uh, Are we worried about cost uh, in these people? And what about hypoglycemia risk? By the way, I don't know if you guys talk to your patients about the cost of medications. Um, I have a lot of patients who have a lot of side effects with the newer drugs, like even the DPP-4 inhibitors. It's almost like they read the label. And I think they did. Because I think they're afraid to tell you that they can't afford the medications. or are embarrassed to tell you that their insurance doesn't cover them. Uh, so I make it a point to ask my patients, you know, did you have any problems getting the medications? Is the copay okay for you? Yeah, there are different copays for different tiers of drugs. And uh, even you know, what we might think is not a huge increase in the copay for some people. It's a big, big deal. So we think about the pathophysiology of the disease, the potency of drugs, uh, the side effects, the precautions. How about the perks? Added benefits, weights, blood pressure, cardiovascular, renal. Uh, the practicalities, tablets versus injections. Can you get patients to take an injection? Uh, Sometimes uh, a once-weekly injection is preferable to taking something uh, every day. Do they need extensive blood glucose monitoring? They certainly do if patients are on daily uh, insulin with every meal. But with the newer drugs where they don't cause hypoglycemia, you can back off on the glucose monitoring considerably. And then finally, price. Are the drugs branded? Are they available as generics? Is there good insurance company? Is there coverage? Is there not good insurance company coverage? So... Primary care docs are stuck in the middle, essentially. 90% plus of individuals with type 2 diabetes have their diabetes managed in primary care. There are not enough endocrinologists to see nearly even all the new patients with diabetes. So, and they don't want to. So uh, balls firmly in PCP's court. And this is going to be increasing over time with the growth of the aging population and the increase in the number of patients with uh, diabetes. And unfortunately, diabetes has, management has been more complex. We have more medications, as they pointed out. Uh, we have more things to think about. Do they have background disease? What drugs should we choose for what people? What drugs should we use in combination? It's complicated. There are patient barriers to effective diabetes treatment. We talked about adverse events, uh, treatment characteristics, getting people to take injections, education, income, insurance, and cultural factors. Um, Clinician-based ones, are you comfortable with injectable therapies are you not? Can you get your team comfortable with injection therapies? They have a lot to offer. And my uh, advice is really get comfortable with insulin in the GLP-1 receptor agonists. You can improve the outcome in your patients. Uh, and then complex patients, people with multiple comorbidities. Um, you know, you are the, the gatekeepers who manage all of these uh, uh, conditions, uh, in a sense, and make sure everything is coordinated. So that's really important. And then finally, externally-based barriers. Access to healthcare, treatment costs, insurance requirements, prior authorization. You know you and live this stuff every day. Diabetes is the ultimate uh, disease for a team approach. Uh, we have uh, many team members who are well-versed, the diabetes educators, Uh, mental health specialists, pharmacists, uh, endocrinologists when you need them. So there are a lot of people that can come to help patients with diabetes. One team member I think is especially important is our diabetes educators. If you don't have diabetes educators in your practice, you should learn where they are in your community. In our practice, uh, we have eight diabetes educators. We do most of the diabetes education for uh, Orlando. And in our Uh, diabetes education program, we can decrease A1c in people whose A1c is above eight by one and a half percent with just with the education. So it makes a huge difference and people are more adherent to medications, uh, they're more adherent to diet and exercise regimens, so it makes a huge, huge difference if you can get people to come to education. It's part of the ADA standards uh, and it's not just about uh, blood glucose monitoring, it's about the medications, it's about nutrition, it's about exercise, it's about psychosocial uh, things. Here's a quote from uh, one of the diabetes educators. When patients understand what's going on with their body, they're so much more likely to do the things that they can help control their diabetes. So they take the time, we take the time to explain in detail and help them work through the emotional issues that are holding them back. We can help them see the behavior changes are doable. I can't tell you how many people in our diabetes education program have kind of come kicking and screaming into education. I don't want to know. I've read on the internet. I know what to do. I know what I should be doing. I just don't do it. And at the end of their education program, they say, I'm so glad I did this because I really learned something. It's different things for different people, but in every case, they're moving forward. Pharmacists can help. What medications are covered? uh, What resources are there for assistance? Social workers can help with that. And it doesn't have to be a, a certified diabetes educator, but somebody who's trained in diabetes management, The monitoring, the initiation of injections is very helpful. Uh, And we have to communicate uh, clearly among all of these different people who are using, uh, who are touching the patients with diabetes. So, using medical records, we can track patients over time, see what their uh, glycemic control is doing, see uh, what their kidney function is doing, or we can do population management to see who's at goal, who's not at goal for your different risks. We can use data to to help patients. Uh, This is uh, examples of continuous glucose monitoring data. Uh, On the left-hand side is actually uh, blood glucose data that's integrated in an app called Gluco. Uh, And you can see at different times of the day you get a different profile. On the right-hand side you see continuous glucose monitoring data. Uh, And these modal days are very helpful for people understanding where in their day they're getting higher blood sugars and what they can do about it. This is the way to engage the patients. As we shift from volume to value, uh, there are a number of things that uh, impact on diabetes uh, management. We need to identify those patients at the highest risk, engage them in a pathway uh, to intervene, and when we do that, outcomes uh, are improved. So it's not just do they get... Uh, their eyes checked. It's not just, you know, do they get on an ACE or ARB. We now have other things to look at. Diabetes is great. You can monitor blood sugars, you can monitor them as many times as you want to. You can monitor them continuously. You can give insulin uh, continuously. But the problem is, this is a little bit of data uh, overload. It's hard in clinical practice to integrate all of this data. It's also hard to incorporate that into the uh, medical records. Now, on the bottom it says not all patients are tech-savvy. That's true, but you'd be surprised how many people can uh, adapt the technology and really use it to their advantages. This is true for continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, We recently completed a study in older patients with type 1 diabetes. Uh, We just gave them a continuous glucose monitor and looked at outcomes like hypoglycemia. At the end of six months, uh, 81% were using that CGM seven days a week and most were using it uh, seven days a week. So virtually everybody was using the CGM, and 89% were using the CGM to make insulin adjustments. So they can adapt to technology just fine, thank you. Uh, So the bottom line, we have diabetes care standards, our uh, patient-centered medical home standards to create a patient-centered, team-oriented approach to diabetes management to improve both individual patient outcomes as well as population health. And in doing so, we're improving care and lowering cost. So I've tried to convey that diabetes is really complex. Uh, we have a large number of options to treat diabetes. Metform is still foundation therapy, but some of the new cardiovascular outcome studies have showed that SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonist have specific benefits to lower cardiovascular and chronic kidney disease outcomes. We have to weigh the risks and benefits of each treatment and individualize therapy for each patient and address the cardiovascular outcomes. Good. All right, we are at the end of our time. Uh, I uh, will be happy to stay behind and uh, answer questions. If anybody has questions, you're welcome to come on up. I thank you all for your attention and have a good rest of the meeting.